Blog Talk Radio. And welcome to the 411 Ground and Pound Radio Show, your weekly look into the wide, wacky, wearying, on more than one occasion, wonderful world of mixed martial arts. I'm Robert Winfrey. I'm your host for this show on, uh, when it's on. I'm the guy here at this point in time. All right. Tonight we will be looking at two incredibly different shows. Uh, This was the, uh, a real, real... Uh, hot and cold scenario. On Friday, there was the finale of the Ultimate Fighters 26th season. Oh boy, that was not a good show. Um, <laughs> but we have a new uh, first ever UFC Women's Flyweight Champion, and there was a you know six hour plus runtime. So we'll be talking about couple of the fights from that in some degree of detail. Uh, mostly the main event. Then I have just, like, things I want to say about a bunch of terrible fights. Then there was UFC 218, which was a pretty great card. It started... At a, it, there were a few lulls, but generally that was a really, really good event. The main card certainly delivered. You had a great main event. You had a exceptional knockout in the co-main event. Um, There was a lot of good stuff on that card, so we'll be reviewing both of those and previewing Fight Night 123, which is coming your way on Saturday. Uh, It has a main event. That's actually a pretty good fight. Uh, It's Cub Swanson versus Brian Ortega. The rest of the card's a little bit more on the so-so side, but that's a very relevant main event. Uh, The winner depending on Frankie Edgar's healing schedule or, you know, other kinds of injuries, could easily be in the title picture. So, and that's a good fight. Uh, Oh, before, usually I do this at the end of the show, but I want to get this out of the way now so I can remember. Uh, As a bit of housekeeping, there will be no show on the 24th of this month because, hey, it's Christmas Eve. Uh, we will, however, preview UFC 219 on the 17th, so two weeks from tonight. But just because there's no event on the 23rd, uh, but just so just for a brief bit of housekeeping, we will be live the 10th, the 17th, and then the 31st, I think. I will double check that and be and have a more concrete perspective uh, at the end of this show. I'll double check the scheduling of various events and whatnot. But anyway, with 
all that on the you – know, and, of course, any major news items that came out over the last week, anything interesting that we feel like talking about, we will bring up here. If you have a question or a comment that you would like to get on the air, uh, if you're calling in live – again, I got yelled at about this um, – something that could be dealt with in 50 words or less, give or take. Uh, happy to take your – I am happy to take live callers at 323-657-0901. You're also more than welcome to you, to leave again questions or comments on the Facebook page of the Rattletch and Broadcasting Network where this player is embedded, or you can tweet me. I am at Winfrey MMA if you would rather send me something through that platform. I'm happy to keep track of all those various things, and I should be able to get to any questions or comments left over, again, those mediums instead of calling in. All right. I've got the full panel here again, and we should be in for a pretty good show tonight. First up, my regular partner in crime for this show, 411 Mania's Jack of All Trades. Jeff Harris is with us again. How you doing, Jeff? My name is Lauren. <laughs> oh, okay. Daniel Cormier is so uneven. All right, and holding things down on the East Coast for us, where I imagine he's about to be buried in snow, our man who has forgotten more about boxing history and a lot of other combat sports than I will ever know, Pat Mullen is here. How are you, How are you Pat? I'm just going to keep on smiling because that's my job. <laughs> All right. Uh, we're going to start with the tough finale because uh, there's not a whole lot to really talk about here, but uh, the I mean main there event, is, but it's negative. The only fight I want to go into in some de- uh, with some degree of depth is the main event, and then we'll probably just do burning desires for the rest of the that whole card because it was yeesh. Uh, anyway, in your main event. This was supposed to be Nico Montano versus Sajara Eubanks. Sajara had defeated Roxanne Montefiore in the final episode of the show. Then Sajara couldn't make weight. She missed on her first attempt and wound up in the hospital as her kidneys had started shutting down before she could make a second attempt. And the UFC just promoted Roxanne Montefiore into that spot. Lauren Murphy, who was originally supposed to be fighting someone else on the card, but that individual had visa issues. Uh, Lauren got bumped up to fight Barb Honchak in the in another fight on this card, and that that was the probably the only other like halfway decent fight on this card was Murphy and Honchak. But we wound up with Nico Montagna versus Roxanne Modafferi for the inaugural women's flyweight championship. I don't have a whole lot to say about the fight. Um, Nico wins via unanimous decision. One judge had it 50-45, which I found a little odd. Uh, The other two were 49-46, which was what I had. I think I gave Roxanne the second, and I gave Nico the other four. Uh, The first round was... The first round could have gone either way as well. The the first two rounds were pretty close. Uh, After that, just... Roxanne really struggled to do anything of real note, and like this was—I don't want to be like the the absolute you know horribly horribly negative individual about this fight because there was so much else on this card that deserves that. You know, this was a 
card would have been a pretty decent like LFA event. It is just if you want to know like the general level that was achieved by all relevant parties. This was a fight, you know, things happened. Nico had a couple of good reversals when Roxanne would try to get takedowns. Roxanne was clearly preparing for a different kind of fighter than Nico Montano. Because, again, she was supposed to fight Barb Honchak, and Barb fights very differently from Nico. Um, I mean, after this fight, I, I don't... When I say the following, I don't mean it as like some horrible insult, because there's a lot of UFC champions for whom this is true. I would be very shocked if Montano gets a single successful title defense under her belt. Especially if she winds up fighting the woman we all kind of assume is going to come down here and just rule the division for a year or so in uh, Valentina Shevchenko. Because, I mean, look, I think Valentina should be the bantamweight champion. I thought she beat Amanda Nunes. And Amanda Nunes is significantly better than Nico Montano. And some of that's to be expected. This was only Nico's, like, sixth professional fight. But if she gets a if she gets a single successful defense, I that will be a bit of a surprise to me, and I really do expect Valentina to come down and just demand the belt. And like, there's no way to stop her because <laughs> Valentina Shevchenko is an exceptional fighter. Uh, Jeff, I'll start with you. What did you think about this fight? You know, uh, the whole circumstance where Roxanne steps in on short notice, uh, the action itself. Uh, your thoughts? I'm not surprised at all by uh, what happened. Uh, I think all things considered, it was a decent enough fight. Um, I'm not surprised Roxanne lost. I did score the fight, um, let me think, um, 49-46. I don't think it was a 50-45 fight. I think you could even maybe give one other round to Roxanne, but... um, I get I get that Mod, Roxanne Modafferi, you know, there's a lot of emotional attachment to her. I mean, she's uh, the reason people call her a pioneer is because she's been fighting um in this sport for 15 years when there was really nothing to fight for in this sport for women. Um when women uh fighting uh in the UFC was at least a decade away. And you know, there wasn't uh, there wasn't really any, you know, this wasn't a long-term career for, this wasn't a career option for women who, who were into combat sports. Uh, now it is. Um, so, you know, she was never the biggest name, but I mean, you know, she was one of the, I guess, one of the, one of the regular staple women's fighters, you know, who was always kind of out there toiling in the trenches, kind of uh, trying to make this happen for women. Um, and I mean, she was around really before there was a Gina Carano, before there was a Cyborg, before there was a Ronda Rousey. So I'm not saying she made this possible for women, but, you know, she was one of this, the women in the sport doing it because she really loved it. That being said, that doesn't make her a great fighter either. I mean, I mean, her record sort of speaks for uh, itself. Even before, you know, there were women fights in the UFC, you know, she wasn't really, I, I wouldn't really have considered her a top fighter. Um I mean, I mean, she got to fight for the title. Good for her, but she still lost, as I expected. All right, Pat, I asked you this on 
Facebook because this struck me as weird. And uh, if you have anything you wanted to add about the technical aspects of the fight, by all means. But you have a really great perspective on history for combat sports. And I ask you because I, I didn't know this. Again, I haven't watched the show, so I have no I had no like real conception of who a lot of these women were. I knew a few of them because I'd either watched or covered some of their fights for Invicta, but that's where I knew like Rachel Ostovich or uh, Barb Honchak from. Uh, but Nico, I, I asked you if uh, Nico was the first like Native American UFC champion because I believe she's she talked about uh, growing up on a Navajo reservation, so I believe she's, uh, you know, like I hate to say full-blooded Native American, but she is at least uh, you know fifty-fifty type thing. Because I don't, to the best of my knowledge, know of any others, and uh, you and I think Wyatt Bozier, who were kind enough to respond to this query, mentioned that. Both Dan Henderson and Frank Shamrock, I might have something in their background, but is she the first, you know, like, again, for want of a better phrase, full-blooded Native American UFC champion? Uh, As full-blooded, yeah. I can't think of anybody else. Um, Wyatt brought up uh, Dan Henderson, who does claim uh, some Native ancestry, but was not a UFC title holder. He was a double pride champion under Zufa ownership. And I, I, I had mentioned Frank Shamrock, who... I believe in his actual, <clears throat> excuse me, blood heritage, um, does have some Native American uh, heritage to him besides his Mexican heritage, um, with his birth name being Frank Juarez. Um, but that being said, as far as a a full heritage of Native American uh, ancestry, Nico would be the first uh, in terms of accomplishing that feat. And good for her if she did. The fight. As far as that, I think it went about as all of us would have expected it to. Listen, Roxanne, all the respect in the world for her, as Jeff mentioned, in terms of her being one of those girls where fighting was not something you were doing to make a lot of money. It was You were doing it because you loved it. Girls like Roxanne, Tara La Rosa, uh, Aaron Tohill, Megumi Fuji-E, uh, Marlouz Kunin, those girls all who really started the women's MMA movement way back when um, and were fighting for peanuts. Um Good, good on them, and we appreciate what they did. And now it's it's nice that women are getting a chance to shine and show what they can do. But Roxanne's not cut out for MMA anymore. She needs to kind of just stick to jujitsu tournaments and things of that nature because she does not have the ability to compete at a high level of MMA successfully. And because she's been doing it so long, there's not a point to her doing it anymore. All right. Uh, the last thing I wanted to ask about, yeah, you know what? No, I'm not going to ask you guys. I, I have something I kind of want to say here, and then we're just going to move on, because this struck me as weird when I was thinking about Nico. The UFC is a deeply inclusive organization, which is weird to think about. It, it, when, when actually put in that context, but, you know, human you know, combat is the eternal equalizer. You know, but, but there's... There are people fighting in the UFC of, you know, both genders, uh, from you know, of pretty much every religious background, uh, various ethnicities, a significant number of countries from around the world. If you can fight to the appropriate level, you and can keep your foot out of your mouth and your hands to yourself, and even those two things have some leeway to them, you've got a spot on that roster. I'm really surprised that the UFC doesn't make a bigger deal out of the fact that they have, you know, this 
significant diversity to them. I don't want them to be, you know, trumpeting it from the rooftops because it comes it can be disingenuous and incredibly obnoxious. But you I mean they crowned their first, you know, the first openly gay uh champion with Amanda Nunes and there wasn't a whole lot of promotional discussion or you know stuff put out about it. Now you've got I mean Does it really uh, need a whole heck of a lot at the end of the day though. I mean she's the inaugural I'm, champion. I mean, come on. It's still something. I mean, again, it's still something. And again, I don't expect Nico to have a long, fruitful title reign. But it was odd. I mean, because all, all I really think that they needed, for me at least, and your mileage may vary, something from commentary about it. That was that literally would have been enough for me. For I mean, you either seem, Dan- you seem more you you seem more concerned about it than she was, Robert. Uh, maybe I am, and I don't know why this particular one struck me as weird, but. Here's here, Again, here's like, my thing, and and, and, and not to get overly political. If we start, you know, championing, yo, this is the first Native American, this is the first uh, homosexual champion, this is the first uh, dual UFC and water polo champion, it, it's it gets like when do you draw the line to stop doing it? Where do you draw the line? Just treat them as fighters. Just treat them as fighters. That's fair and promote them as they are. You know, if people who are native want to jump on that, cool. They they probably know that and it means something to them and she'll do well with that audience if she has a strong drawing there. But I think when you specialize somebody or classify them in a certain way, it seems like you're trying to push them to just one audience. And you want to encompass the whole audience to get either behind this person to want to pay to see them or to antagonize a group and pay the, to want to see this person lose. Um, you know, it, it gets silly after a while when you kind of individualize everything into this is our first gay champion, this is our first native champion, this is our first redheaded champion, this is our first adopted champion. Like, you, you know what I mean? Like, it's just too much for me at a certain point. That's fair. All right. Anyway, as for the rest of this card, oi, this card. All right, I'm just going to read you through skip the rest of this card. I'm going to read through it the was... <laughs> Look, I'll I'll read through the results. I'll give you my brief thoughts on each fight and if you either of you has something you want to say about it, you are more than welcome to take 50 words or less, but again, like there's nothing else of any real import here. Um in the co-main event, Sean O'Malley, who I did not even know was alive, and the UFC spent like a significant amount of this card hyping. Defeated Terry and Ware via unanimous decision, 29-28 across the boards. Um, there's so much work that needs to be done with O'Malley. I can't, I don't even want to criticize him too much because he's doing a Dominic Cruz impression most of the time without actually understanding why Dominic Cruz does what Dominic Cruz does. And there's significantly worse fighters you could try to copy if you're trying to make your way in the sport than Dominic Cruz. Maybe he'll get better. Maybe he'll flame out. But there's still a lot of work that needs to be done because Terry and Ware almost beat him. Uh, Lauren Murphy defeated Barb Honchak via split decision. 129-28 for Barb. 229-28 for Lauren. Awful. This was... The scoring is what he means for the record. I actually had this 30-27 for Barb. Um, Murphy could have taken, I think, the third round. This wasn't a bad fight. Um, again, I disagree with the scoring, but it wasn't 
This wasn't the worst scorecard of the night. This wasn't the worst scorecard of the weekend of the events as such. Um, the best moment was Daniel Cormier in the post-fight interview calling Lauren Barb. Um, because, look, Daniel those, Cormier on... Yeah. I was going to say, for those who don't get it, if you didn't watch The Ultimate Fighter, uh, Lauren Murphy was a part of Team Alvarez, didn't get along with Eddie. And when she asked if she could train with Team Gagey, Eddie called her the wrong name. So there was a very famous, you know, web moment. My name is Lauren. And nobody cared. Um, I, I, my only thing here was Daniel Cormier on commentary and doing interviews and whatnot. The first half of an event, unless there's something that he is obviously biased towards, he's pretty good. The second half, and I can hardly fault him or anyone else for getting weird the second half of a six and a half hour event with the pacing that these things have um gerald mershart defeated eric spicely via tko in the second round this fight sucked um mershart landed a couple of re- the whole the second round the whole thing was he landed some really good body kicks and i'm a sucker for a liver shot finish the fight still wasn't terribly good um but good for mershart getting the win um, Deanna Bendit and Melinda Fabian fought to a majority draw. 129-27 for Bennett, which is utterly indefensible. And then two 28-28s. Um, Fabian I got was deduct- sick thinking about how bad this was. This was awful. This was just awful. Um, Fabian was deducted a point in the second round for fence grabbing because she used one to stay upright. Perfectly okay with the point deduction. I mean, if you, because I don't want to actually go into how bad the fight was, here's what I want to, here's the only thing I'll say about it. Deanna Bennett got smoked with a head kick at the end of the first round. Hit flush, dropped. If there's 10 more seconds in that round, she's finished. And despite there being a beautiful head kick near finish, this fight still sucked out loud. It was awful. It was just awful. Neither of these women should be in the UFC. Uh, Brett Johns defeated Joe Soto at 30 seconds of the first round with a calf slicer. This was beautiful. This was the the big highlight of this entire event was Brett Johns countering a high crotch single leg attempt uh, from Joe Soto. He reached through, rolled with it, and grabbed a calf slicer in transition from kind of like a 50-50 guard. Uh, And again, this was beautiful. Like, I don't know that Brett Johns is going to be somebody of real note in the division, but you should absolutely pay attention to him. He's 15 and 0. He's two or three and 0 in the UFC. I can't remember which. Uh, He's got a lot of ability. Pay attention to that guy. Uh, On the prelims, Montana De La Rosa defeated Christina Marks via submission with an armbar in the first round. Nothing of note. Maybe the worst fight. God. Ryan James defeated Andrew Sanchez via TKO in the third round. I have to say this. Andrew Sanchez sucks. Like, I have no earthly idea how this guy could suck this much. Because he put a beating with terrible punches on Ryan James. Because Ryan James... The sum total of his striking defense is, well, I can take a punch. Sanchez blasted him with these ugly-looking looping punches, couldn't finish him, and punched himself out in the first, like, 90 seconds of the bout. If Andrew Sanchez didn't suck, this would have been over in the first round. If Ryan James didn't suck, 
he would have finished the gassed shell of Andrew Sanchez in the second round instead of in the third. I mean, I almost don't want to give James credit for the finish because Andrew Sanchez just collapsed from exhaustion rather than from abuse. This was awful. This was just awful. For a bigger joke about this, I don't know how many of you all might remember this. When Andrew Sanchez won his season of The Ultimate Fighter and for his immediate fight thereafter, and I think his third, because I think he beat Khalil Roundtree, he dropped back to middleweight, which is his more natural weight class. He fought Anthony, not Anthony Smith, excuse me, Trevor Smith. Yeah, hot sauce. And he beats him. And throughout both of those fights, commentary is praising his conditioning, even in the first Smith fight when he's clearly fatigued by the third round. They go on to praise a bunch of his conditioning in the Anthony Smith fight where he gasses after the first and is finished in the third. It's just, it's comical. Um, Rachel Ostovich Burden defeated Kareen Gavorgian via armbar in the first round. Not a whole lot here. Rachel Ostovich is actually a half-decent fighter, and Gavorgian isn't. Shayna Dobson defeated Ariel Beck via TKO in the second round. The striking defense of Ariel Beck makes me sad. And kicking everything off, Jillian Robertson defeated Emily Whitmire via armbar in the first round. I, I, somebody else pointed this out on Twitter, and I feel it bears repeating. And forgive me, I can't remember who said this. The first half of this card was like 2001 MMA in terms of mediocre strikers and slightly above mediocre grapplers. Armbar shouldn't come that easy, especially if you know what you're doing, and certainly not in the first round. There was a lot of really poor grappling on this show. All right, Pat, anything you want to touch on from this fight, from this event, rather? Uh, any burning desires? Uh, Murphy Honchak decision was horrible. Uh, Brett Johns calf slicer is maybe one of my top five submissions ever. It was so fun and beautiful to watch. Um, Ryan James, Andrew Sanchez is everything wrong about MMA. Uh, Deanna Bennett versus Melinda Fabian may have been the worst fight I've ever seen. And I watched Shamrock seven, two live. All right, Jeff, anything else you'd like to say about this card? There were fights. Were there? Technically, yes. Uh, all right. Fights happened. People were locked in a cage. Time passed. <laughs> uh, all right. Thanks to everyone who actually did kind of follow. I don't know how many people actually followed along with this event. I got more comments, and this is the only, bear in mind, that's the only measurement I have as far as who's reading, if anyone. I don't actually have access to the number of you know hits or clicks and Quite frankly, again, I don't care. As long as there's, like some, there's one person out there reading, I'm still perfectly content to do what I do. But there was more like general interest and people following along with the latter half of the Shanghai card that started at like 1.45 in the morning my time than there was for this event. Like nobody cared about this thing. So, th- But thanks to anyone who did you know, happen to read. Uh, God bless you. All right. Last night... The good card, UFC 218. Boy, did I need a palate cleanser after that tough card. All right, your main event. Max Holloway defeats Jose Aldo again via TKO again, once again in the third round. I love watching Max Holloway fight. 
It is one of my favorite things. Uh, this was a while this went similarly to the first bout, there were also some pretty significant differences. Aldo fought more conservatively in the first round. There weren't nearly kind of the big flurries that he had. Some of that was conscious choice on his part. Some of it was because of how Holloway adapted to dealing with big flurries. Uh, Holloway used a much more consistent uh, jab throughout the totality of this fight. Aldo actually brought his leg kicks to bear. But they, leg kicks take time, generally speaking. Even the, you know, the hardest leg kickers in the game, very few of them will take you out with one, especially if you've appropriately conditioned yourself for them. And Max Holloway was conditioned to absorb leg kicks in the course of his fight. Uh, this was a lot of there was a lot of really interesting movement from both guys in this. Jose Aldo's head movement and upper his upper body stuff continues to be really good until he gets tired. His defense is really when he's all there mentally and he's not physically exhausted. His defense is quite good. He was doing a lot of slipping, uh, but he just really couldn't answer the constant pressure and volume that Holloway put on him. Holloway did a lot of, again, intelligent movement. He did a lot of corralling. Uh, there was some really impressive stuff that he did as far as, you know, keeping Aldo near the fence once Aldo stopped being really mindful of his footwork. Uh, and when Aldo's head movement was there and much better than their first bout, Holloway adjusted by going to the body. He did a lot of jabs and right crosses to the body, which are great tools. And as the fight wore on, Max Holloway just kept consistently turning up the pressure, turning up the volume, and eventually Jose Aldo drowned in the third round. Again, like I love watching Max Holloway fight, and I am internally salivating at the prospect of about a year from now, a title fight between Max Holloway and Zabit Magomed Sharipov, because I think Magomed Sharipov needs that year to continue developing and refining his skills. But when he gets to the title level, I I love the thought of what he and Max Holloway might do when they're in the cage together. Um, This was a really interesting fight. I was deeply happy with it. As a fan, I liked their first fight for much the same reason. Uh, I think Luke Thomas had the best analogy when it comes to fighting Max Holloway. You are the frog in the pot of lukewarm water, but the burner's on. And if you can't do something early, you're just going to boil to death. Uh, Jeff, I'll start with you for this one. Uh, What did you think about the fight? Max Holloway continues to excel. He is unequivocally, I think, the best featherweight in the world right now. You may think you're the best but not until you face the blessed. Max Holloway, champion of the featherweight, featherweight division than Jose Aldo ever was, and he's already proven that uh, with uh, just these two uh, title fights he was in. Um, Jose Aldo, ever since he got into the UFC, has had very questionable cardio. Uh, we've all seen it. We've taken note of it before. But no one was really able to really test or really push uh, Aldo's uh, cardio until uh, he fought uh, Max Holloway. And for whatever reason, uh, fighters 
weren't really able to kind of uh, push Aldo to his limits. His cardio is uh, nothing to write home about, and uh, it's something more fighters should have uh, tried to exploit, and it's something uh, Holloway is able to do, and I really like that. I did think he got a little reckless during this fight. I mean, uh, obviously he was trying to goad uh, Aldo into a brawl and kind of get him to do that, but still, leaving your head open like that, it's very risky. Uh, the risk paid off here, but I mean, we've seen in other fights, you know, you know, fighting like that, it's a, it's a risk, it's a risky move. Uh, it can't uh, because uh, Aldo was scoring on Holloway here. Arguably, I think you could have even given that first round to to Jose Aldo. Um, you second could've. round, I thought was a, second round was a lot closer. Think you know, you could have probably given it to Holloway, but you could have maybe even arguably given uh, round two to Aldo. Um, Aldo did a better job of using more of his leg kicks uh, this fight. He he did use some more combinations, which I liked. But um, it was a war of attrition uh, he wasn't prepared for. And uh, I'm just glad we finally have someone like Holloway's champion who can uh, who can fight the way he does and who can you know who can really just push push guys you know like Aldo who who is a great fighter. Uh, to their limits, and, I, and I'm very excited to see what he does next as champion. I'm very excited to see w- how this title reign is going to unfold. I think he can. Ho- I think he's going to be a very dominant champion, and I think he's going to hold on to this belt for a while. But uh, I loved his performance, and uh, I hope he fights Frankie Edgar next. Uh, if not, hopefully the winner of Swanson versus Ortega. All right, Pat, you're as much of a fan of technical fighting as I am. So what did you see about Holloway, how he performed, how he adjusted? I mean, that whole near-finishing sequence when he kind of goaded Aldo into planting his feet and he's slipping 90% of Aldo's offerings and landing counters that, I mean, they're not one-shot knockout punches, but he was just battering him for until Aldo went for that desperation takedown that led immediately to the end of the fight. That was some beautiful stuff. Yeah, the whole the whole purpose of that exchange was for him to get Jose Jose to make a mistake that he had to commit on, so that he could find that opening and take the fight where he wanted it to. When Aldo went for that takedown, and Holloway was able to take control of it, put him down, had knee on belly, and really just unleashed a really nice finishing sequence to end the fight. That was wonderful. That was smart. What I saw different from Holloway in this fight is I saw more of a commitment from him to one thing, as you pointed out, use a better jab. And he double jabbed a lot in this fight, which was really nice to see. And he had a stronger commitment to punching to Aldo's body, which we talked about Aldo's cardio issues. He decided to try to really push that issue by punching Aldo in the body early and often. Now, he wasn't technically great at it. A lot of times when he did end up going to the body, Aldo was able to hit him as well or come close to hitting him because Max hasn't mastered that. And again, working the body of a shorter opponent when you are a tall, rangy guy is a risky proposition to begin with. But it's one he was able to use, use effectively, and get the fight where he wanted it to. So that was another change I saw in him. Jose's biggest problem is not his head movement uh, when he's in combination striking. Jose's biggest problem defensively is when the exchanges are finished, 
when he's done striking and he looks to get out and he pulls away with his chin up. And he often does the same side exit where if he'll heavily favor going to his left, he does it often. If he heavily favors going to his right, he goes that way often in the span of a fight. Holloway is too long and rangy for anyone to do that with because he can catch you when you think he can't. And he does. And he did in this fight too. Uh, and that's not to say Aldo didn't have anything to offer. He, I know on some cards he did steal the first round. He landed a really good uppercut and followed with a left hand behind it. He, he was competitive in round two because you're not just ever going to silence a guy who's that good. It, you know, it, it just doesn't happen, especially over the course of a fight that goes more than a round. He's going to have his moments. But it's funny because watching this, this weekend I was watching some of my old boxing tapes, and I came across a fight between Marco Antonio Barrera and Junior Jones. And Jones was a, a, a guy who was thought to not have much left, and, you know, Barrera was supposed to eat him up and chew him out because he was this young Mexican assassin. And Jones beat him up pretty convincingly the first fight with a lot of the same tools that Holloway beat up Aldo in the first fight with. They had a rematch later on where people think Barrera is going to right the ship, and instead Jones beats him again. It's closer, but Jones wins again. And this is just one of those things where certain guys have a certain style that someone can't crack no matter how good they are, and this is one of them. Yeah, I. to me, Max Holloway's success and continued success, because he's going to have more success in the future barring catastrophic injury, He's a testament to why you practice fundamentals, guys. To anyone out there who's training or thinking about it. Max Holloway's not a big one-punch finisher. Max Holloway's not a world-class wrestler. He's not an uber-slick submission guy. But he has the fundamentals from everything down incredibly well. And when you have those, you can build to unbelievable heights off of those. Uh, I, I do hope he fights Frankie Edgar. Uh, I just want to see that fight. I still favor Holloway. I, I still, guys, this is the other thing. When I said I wanted to see a second fight between Holloway and Conor McGregor, I meant it. I would be, I find that fight in, incredibly interesting how both of them have evolved and matured since their previous encounter. That fight fascinates me. Uh, I imagine Edgar's next, assuming he doesn't, his injury isn't you know, worse than initially anticipated, or there's you know, not some other random bit of MMA insanity that strikes it. But if there is, then we do have the main event for next week that could easily crown a number one contender. So there, there's no shortage of deserving contenders at featherweight at the moment. All right, your co-main event. Good grief. Francis Ngannou defeats Alistair Overeem via knockout a minute and 42 into the first round. Uh, Wolf. Um, I don't know what Alistair was doing. Uh, when, he really, when he made this engagement, he kind of got close, which was an odd proposition for him considering where he fights at his best. And both guys were kind of standing in the pocket, a little bit outside of that range maybe. They both threw a couple of hooks, and Overeem 
as you do, if you want to avoid somebody's hook, it's pretty easy. You bend. You duck. Hooks aren't that hard to avoid. So he ducks, and he throws, and he misses, and he slips uh, a right hand that Nganu threw. And Nganu comes back with this left shovel punch that Overeem apparently never sees coming, because as he straightens his posture, I don't know if he was trying to just exit the situation or if he was trying to come up with a punch that never even developed. He comes up, and his chin is wide open, and Nganu hits him so hard. Like, Overeem's head, the back of his head nearly touches his back. He looks like a Pez dispenser. And I think he actually left his feet. Like, Nganu hit Alistair Overeem so hard, he lifted him off of his feet for a second. And Overeem collapses, fight's over. Pat, some people were throwing this around, and I'm hard-pressed to come up with a better answer. And anything you want to say about the fight, of course, uh, I'm very interested in. But is Francis Ngannou maybe the hardest puncher in UFC history? Like, putting aside pound-for-pound discussions, just who can generate the most force with their fists? I really struggle to come up with someone better than who has demonstrated a better ability with that than Ngannou does. In terms of just pure blunt force trauma generated, it's pretty hard to argue with Ngannou at this point in time. And we've seen some big, strong, heavy hitters come along. But I don't think anybody with the pure devastation that he's able to render when he lands these wild punches. Um, Just, you know, watching that knockout a couple times, you know, when Ngannou hits him with that left, Overeem is in a weird position where he had thrown that left hand, that left hand, winged it, and just had his right hand completely to his side, and I don't know whether he was looking to maybe be able to grab a leg or grab a clinch, but nothing. There's nothing really that justifies his hand positioning to what he was doing and what happened, and Ngannou just threw this left hook from left field and landed right on his chin. And I don't care who you are. If you let a man that big, that strong hit you with a punch, he was able to put everything he had into, you're going to sleep. Like, it's not going to not happen. Um, It it was really bad, uh, technically, from Overeem. And I think his entire performance in this was questionable. Um, That's not to take away from Nganu, who – came in in good shape, did what he wanted to do, and fought his fight. But I I just consider a lot of what Overeem did really poor and not the norm from what we've seen from him when he's at his best. And I think, I don't know, he's Overeem's been around for a while. We're talking, isn't it? We've had these kind of slip-ups before. Not to make a bad technical mistake like that. You know, like, like Overeem getting knocked out isn't terribly uncommon. I think the majority of his losses are via knockout. It's more how we got there in this instance. That was a little bit. He's surprising. been knocked out. This was his eleventh knockout loss. Yeah, yeah again, but he doesn't generally is, get knocked out from. But yeah, he doesn't generally get knocked out from bad technical decisions in the in the fight itself. It's we've seen him knocked out because he's gassed out and gotten beaten up. We've seen him knocked out because 
He was in the middle of an exchange, and there was a combination being thrown. This is just bad performance on his end. I don't know. And generally when he's lost, it's not, it's not because he hasn't tried to perform or, you know, we, you know, like the Brown fight, the, the Bigfoot fight, Rothwell, that was a lot of conditioning Rothwell? issues. Yeah, Rothwell too. Rothwell knocked him out um, in two minutes. Yeah, the Rothwell fight was, again, a more case of Overeem not respecting his opponent, uh, uh, to me more than anything, um, which is unfortunately common for guys who fight Ben Rothwell I, and they learn a hard lesson. That's not a very good technical decision right there, Pat, I would say. That has nothing yeah. to do with technique. That's arrogance. It, it's eh. a fault of preparation more than yeah. in-cage technique. Anyway, go ahead, Pat. But this is a case where you're in the middle of an exchange in close range where it's not even kickboxing range. You're in, you're in boxing range. That's, that, you have to be prepared to defend. And Overeem's, more than anything, is so afraid of or has been so afraid of getting hit that he, he developed this habit of the one strike at a time and cover my chin, one strike at a time, cover my chin. And then he got better about it, but that's as bad defensively as you'll see from anybody, let alone him. Literally, while throwing this, this punch that was missed, his hand is below his waist. You can't do that with anybody, especially in heavyweight. Uh. Uh, a couple of technical things I wanted to touch on for Ngannou. Uh, no, you know what? No, sorry. Let me phrase that. I'll do that again at the end. Um, Jeff, you and I, I think, both picked Ngannou to win here. Um, and he's likely fighting for the belt next. I mean, this guy's a freak of nature. <laughs> he's impressive. Uh, so what were your thoughts on this? And what do you think he, about a potential fight between I him mean, and Stipe? Uh, and Ganu's the best prospect to come out of the heavyweight division probably uh, in years, probably since uh, Stipe Miocic, really, and in, in, in him emerging as a heavyweight contender. Um, I love that fight with Stipe, and uh, I think just like this was a, just like this was a tough test put in front of Francis. I like. I like that Stipe uh, presents a, lo- a lot of other problems. Uh, we haven't seen Ngannou had to deal with before. I mean, we know he can get out of the first round fairly intact, but we don't, I mean, you know, one of, one of Stipe's best attributes is really his cardio. Uh, also his stamina. We know he can go pretty hard for five rounds. We know. Um, and Stipe is also very fast. He also has good footwork, good boxing, and he's also good at, uh, at, uh, staying, staying away, uh, from, uh, guy's offense. I mean, he did a good job of, uh, I mean, I mean, Roy Nelson is not as good of a striker as a Francis Ngannou, but I mean, he does have a formidable knockout power. Um, I really, I, I think it's a very interesting fight and, uh, I, I could, I could very much see that fight matchup favoring, uh, Stipe Miocic, but look, I mean, Francis Ngannou, when you, when you have the power, just put someone's lights out with just one little touch. Uh, that's a huge difference maker. Um, and we've seen we've seen Miocic hurt by guys who don't right. have the same level of power. Right, but I mean uh, that's why I like the matchup because uh, it has a lot of uh, it has a lot of interesting questions. Is 
Does Steve Pamiotic have all the skill sets necessary to put a game plan together to deal with a guy like Nganu? Or does he get in there with, and, and does Nganu's just his crazy power and his, uh, his strong boxing skills, is that, is that more than enough to deal with Stipe? I, uh, uh, I love that fight, and uh, I hope we get to see it. I hope we get to see it really soon. Um, let's see. They talk, when is that Boston card they were talking about? Um, doo, doo, doo. Let's see. 220. Boston. Uh, 220, January 20th. So, I don't know. I don't know if they can put it together that quickly. And Ganu seemed... That, fight, seemed, that card has a main event in theory already. Right. Um... I don't he know if that'll hold together because to it's Cormier idea. versus Uzdemir, but it, I mean, he seemed okay with the idea of fighting that soon. Um, I guess they could put that fight together if uh, Stipe was up for it. I don't know if that's too soon for Stipe, but um, if they do it by March or, or April, I think that'd be fine. Um, yeah, the only thing I wanted to say kind of technically about Nganu that I didn't bring up before, and a lot of credit to the guy I'm stealing this from, Jack Slack. Uh, Nganu's got a couple of things that you don't really see a lot of heavyweights have, and he's been successful in large part, not that he isn't getting better, and he is, and I do want to touch on that, but a couple of things he does really well that most heavyweights can't deal with. One, apart from his just stupid power, He's got pretty fast hands. He's not a laborious puncher. I mean, Shane Carwin was an extraordinarily heavy hitter as well, but his he didn't have fast hands. He had some labored punches. Nganu also throws in combination. If you look at his first couple of UFC fights, he's not hitting guys with the first punch. It's the second. He throws four punches in a row. And the third or the fourth is the one that really finally finds the target because the majority of heavyweights, they throw two at most, and then they're done and reset. And the fact that he would throw multiple punches got him a lot, got a lot of you know success early in his career when he didn't have other skills that he was, you know, other skills he was still working on. The big improvement he's made uh, is in his footwork. Again, feel free to look at his first couple of UFC fights. His footwork is just bad. It's very plodding. He's bringing his feet together constantly. Uh, he squares up a bit. It, it's just—it's not good. His last—his cu- last two fights, the uh, again the Overman and the Arlovsky one, he's made significant improvements in how he moves. Uh, I don't know if again Stipe might be too much for him in the sense that you know again cardio, consistent output, you know wrestling. How does Nganu wear damage? How does he react if he gets hit really hard? You know, there's there's still questions there, but he has enough power to it, he hits so hard. You had darn well better be able to address that if you want to make him actually answer any other questions about his game. Uh, and even if he loses to Stipe, I imagine he'll wind up with another crack at the belt further down the road. And given that he's continued to actually get better. Um, he will probably be champion at some point, uh, barring something really unforeseen. All right, next up, we had a flyweight bout. Henry Cejudo defeated Sergio Pettis for unanimous decision, 30-27 across the board. Um, 
this was Sergio. Yeah. How do I say that? Oh, no, no. I actually know I want to say this. When I said last week that Sergio Pettis is a good fighter, and I don't mean to undercut that by any stretch of the imagination, he is a good fighter. He's a very good fighter. He's also not a great fighter. Sergio Pettis is 24, and he debuted in the UFC 25. He's almost, no, he's 24. He debuted in the UFC in what, 13? So he's been there for four years, a little over four years. He's had 10, I believe, UFC fights, give or take. He's had a lot. Sorry, he might have had more than that. Jeez. He's had a lot. <laughs> Again, four years in the UFC. And he's 24. By contrast, we have Max Holloway, who is 25, who debuted in the UFC in 2012. One of these guys is a very good, but ultimately unspectacular and still very much developing fighter. The other's one of the best in the world. This is kind of what I mean when I say Sergio Pettis is good, but he's really, he hasn't hit great. Max Holloway, in roughly the same amount of time, has developed into, again, the best featherweight in the world and one of the best pound-for-pound fighters in the world. Um, Sergio just didn't have a whole lot to offer here. When they were at distance, he had some decent body kicks, and Cejudo struggled a little bit with the range. It kind of surprised me, actually. He kept hanging out at the end of Sergio's punches until he decided to close distance. But once they got close, Sergio just had no answer for Cejudo's wrestling, for his riding. And Sergio was... When I said Sergio and Anthony have the same problem, they're too accommodating of being on their back. Like, if you have a really good guard, that's a great asset. You should have that. And you should also have the intelligence to know when it when you can use it and when you should go, no, I really don't want to be here against this guy. Henry is one of those guys you really don't want to be under. Because even if he's not going to bludgeon you into a finish, you had, he is going to control you. You have to get out from under him as quickly as possible. I mean... I get like, I mean, Demetrius did it. Sudo took him down. First thing he did was set up a position where he could immediately get back to his feet because you don't want to be under that guy. Pettis was a little too accommodating of, well, let me play with my guard for a bit. Then, oh, this isn't working. Now I'll try to get up. And then Sudo is all over you. It, uh, again, so good, solid overall performance from Sudo. Nothing spectacular, but he was clearly the superior fighter. Basically everywhere. And if he's able to force you to fight on his terms, he's probably going to beat you. He's an exceptional fighter when he's able to do so on terms that benefit him. Uh, Pat, you have anything you wanted to say about this fight? Anything that struck you? Yeah, Henry Cejudo is really, really good and only getting better. And he's going to beat your average fighters of the world like Sergio Pettis. And he's going to be a guy who will be a champion at some point, whether he beats DJ or whether DJ moves on to something else and the title becomes vacant. He's that good and only getting better. All right, Jeff, any thoughts on Cejudo beating Pettis? Uh, it, it was a dominant uh, performance. I thought Cejudo looked good. 
Um, Cejudo used his wrestling uh, really well, um, which wasn't surprising. I think Cejudo can work on his uh, his submission grappling a little more just because I think he had some good positions there and could have maybe done a little more damage on the ground. If I mean, that's my only real criticism of his performance. But overall, uh, I thought it was a good dominant uh, win for Cejudo. Uh, I'm not sure. I mean, I'm not sure. he. I mean, the only way, though, I see him winning the belt is if Johnson vacates his division, though, or moves up or something. I think that's the only way he becomes champion. As good as, good as I think he looks, uh, I just I still don't see him beating Demetrius Johnson. All right, next up. Oh, I needed this fight. I needed this fight in my life so much after the... I mean, like, this card was good, but... I really needed this fight. Eddie Alvarez defeats Justin Gaethje via, I called it a knockout with a knee strike at 359 of the third round. Oh, I love this fight. This was a lot of what I expected and a lot of what I didn't expect. The way to beat Justin Gaethje has never been a mystery. I mean, he was undefeated and, you know, a, a really, really good fighter, great in many respects, but there wasn't a whole lot of mystery about how to beat him. The problem is, it's not, okay, how do I beat this guy? Well, here's some things you should do. One, don't get your back against the fence, because he will murder you. Two, don't brawl with him. That will go very badly. Keep mobile, uh, you know, attack his body, kind of slow him down a little bit that way, be prepared for his offense, and know that you're going to get beat up in return, because you're not going to get out of a fight unscathed with that guy unless you put him out with the first punch you land. It's not going to happen. The problem was never the strategy. The problem was, okay, now go do it. Because you now have this fundamentally like insane human being walking you down, forcing you into a fight that you don't want to be in because you can't beat him on his own terms. The reason I picked Gaethje to beat Alvarez here was because Eddie Alvarez has a history of making bad moment-to-moment decisions. When Eddie Alvarez doesn't make bad decisions, if he sticks to a game plan, if he executes well, if he doesn't get you know sucked into bad positions, if he keeps his head about him, he is one of the best lightweights in the world. He is an all-time great lightweight. If you look at his resume... He's one of the best lightweights the sport has ever seen. And in this fight, he kept his head about him. He did not brawl with Justin Gaethje. He stayed smart. He stayed mobile. He never let himself get put on the fence. It's a huge thing. Is if That's where Gaethje does his best work, when he knows you can only go one of two ways. And he's going to punish you to either side. He moved very well. He fought very smart. He did a lot of body work. That was really effective. He took advantage of the defense that Gaethje uses. Gaethje does a lot of slipping with his upper body behind what's called a peekaboo hand position. Now, the peekaboo hand position is great for what it's designed to do. It helps you see your opponent. It also helps you absorb damage to the head. If your opponent's not going to the head, it isn't quite as effective because you're leaving your body exposed. Alvarez did the Alvarez was ready for the leg kicks. They hurt him like Visibly, he limped more than once. He changed his stance a handful of times to give himself a moment to recover on his lead leg. Stayed composed throughout the entire fight. And in the third round, 
basically the last minute. These two have been beating the dog snot out of each other. He still has the presence of mind to grab a tie clinch when they're in close and land that knee to the chin. That was just the final blow that broke the camel's back. I loved this fight. I loved what both guys did. I loved the adjustments both guys made. Uh, this was this was great, and this is a great reminder of just how good Eddie Alvarez is when he can kind of get out of his own head as far as that goes. Because when he's fighting and he doesn't make good decisions, he looks as bad as he did against Conor McGregor, or he gets kind of tuned up by Dustin Poirier. And both those guys are great fighters. I don't mean to imply otherwise. But his performances in both of those fights were pretty bad. When he's able to stay focused and keep about himself, he can beat anyone in the world. And the fact that he can beat the majority of the world without doing those things is a real testament to just how good he is. Uh, Pat, I'll start with you on this one. Uh, What are your thoughts on this fight? Uh, What did you see that maybe I didn't touch on? Uh, Anything you think I'm wrong about? I'm happy to be corrected. This was just incredible violence. Uh, Really just violence for the sake of violence on violence. And it was really good. To me, the biggest thing was, and it's a a thing Gagey never allowed himself to, to fight out of, because he likes to trade, he likes to put on an exciting fight, you know, great, he wants to be an entertainer, but it's not always to your best interest. And to me, the biggest thing in this fight was that as great as his leg kicks were, and they hurt Alvarez, you pointed that out, way too often he was content to let Eddie get to the inside, pass those leg kicks, and that's where Eddie did his best work in the fight. He worked over his body early and often. Now, if you notice, while Eddie had trouble moving because of the damage done with the kicks, Gagey very visibly moved less and less and less as the fight went on because Eddie was taking his legs away as he worked over the body. Now, in the third round... They're still trading in close, and it looks like Alvarez is slowing down. Gagey's landing often. He and he hit Alvarez with again a leg kick to set up a right uppercut, and he was hurt. Gagey, instead of intelligently going for the finish, is so into the adrenal response and thinking it's over. I got him that he goes too far inside again where Alvarez's quicker hands get the better of him on the exchanges. And because he wasn't prepared for what he hit him with, which was a tremendous knee, that's where the fight got away from him. And once that happened and he got hit, he immediately went out. The funny part is, at the time, I had the fight one-to-one, I believe you had the same score, Robert. Jeff, I, I don't did. know how you had it scored, but can I assume you had it one-to-one? Jeff? I had every round for Eddie, but I thought, I thought um, some of them were pretty close, but I think I scored okay, right each one for Alvarez. Yeah, I, I had, I had uh, round, 
Yeah, I no, have one for Eddie round two for, for Gagey. Yeah. One of those was... But, but either way, Gagey, they, they, were, they were competitive. Um, so now... Gagey was Gagey, winning that third round. <laughs> that, that's the exactly killer. where I'm going to. He had the advantage very clearly in the third round. I truly think the third round was the most definitive up to the finish as far as who had control for the longest period of time in a round. And Gagey, because he leapt in to the area where Alvarez had had the better of the exchanges and was in a quick – and, again, is quicker on the draw, even when he was tired comparatively. That's what he was able to get him with. Now, had Gagey not been Gagey and – work diligently for the finish and try to set it up rather than charge in boss to the wall, we might have had a different result. But as it stands, Alvarez rebounded, hit hard with a perfectly timed shot, and got one of the bigger wins of his career and one I think he really needed at this point. Oh, he did. (laughs) Career-wise, definitely. Yeah. Uh, All right, Jeff... Your thoughts on this fight? Because again, I, I've well, said what I'm basically what I'm going to say. You wanted so. violence. You wanted I did. violence, uh, Robert. I hope you were entertained. This was. Uh, I was. Uh, this uh, was just about as violent of a contest uh, you're ever going to see. Um, I really like the way uh, Eddie worked over the body here. That made a huge difference, I think, over the course because this was a long, this was a long and grueling fight for both guys. Those body shots um, definitely took effect because they did really slow. They they slow get uh, Gagey down, and, and Gagey was still able to get in a lot of offense there, especially to Alvarez's leg. Um, he clearly did a lot of damage uh, to Alvarez's leg because he was he was starting to show uh, later in the fight, and uh, he busted up his face too. But um, I think Alvarez. Um, he may not be as power, just as purely powerful as Gagey, but I think he is uh, a bit more technical with his striking and his boxing, and I think he showed that here. I think by – I guess if I, I – I have one problem with MMA strikers. I think they they highly underestimate the – you know, just the the quality and the value of body shots and what good body shots and good body work can do for you over the course of just sort of a long, uh, grueling fight. And I, and I like that Eddie seemed to catch on to that here, even though he did eat a lot of leg kicks and those clearly hurt him. I think those body shots were the huge difference maker here. And I think those were what helped him kind of win this war of attrition and ultimately win, win the fight because um, I think what led to the finish, I think, was really hurting – and working over the body of uh, Justin Gagey because um, they clearly took a bit of pep out of his step. And uh, without those body shots, I think the fight would have gone uh, a lot differently. Hey, Pat, I meant to ask you something. Um, it kind of got brought up how busted up, you know, both these guys were just, their faces were a mess. They must look like sloth from the Goonies tonight. <laughs> I mean, they did a serious number on each other. Uh, that, big swelling that Alvarez had on his uh, the right side of his face it was uh, like kind of between his nose and his upper lip like below the cheekbone uh, what was what what causes that you've seen a lot of you know a lot of fights especially a lot of boxing where face punching is slightly more prevalent 
Do you know what causes that? Like what particular bone that is that might have broken or that, you know, different areas. Like I know where the orbital is. I know where the cheekbone is. That was in a weird spot for, I've never, I don't think I've ever seen that before. So do you know what that was? If you put your thumb on your face, and it's just weird to hear over the air, but if you put your thumb on your, on your face at the spot where the very top of your gums are, okay, because that's kind of the spot you're talking about where yeah. that swelling happened, if you get hit there, because it's a lot of skin and muscle as opposed to a real concrete bone, it tends to fill with blood very easily and you will get a nasty bit of swelling and buildup in that area that can burst. But other than that, it's base. It's going to, if it was a, a fracture of some kind, you're talking about the, it's an odd, it's an odd way to phrase it, but you're talking about basically the beginning of your cheekbone and by the beginning, I mean the part, the point that's closest to your nose. It would have been a small fracture there that resulted in that. But a lot of times, because it's so easy for blood to collect in a certain area of that spot because of how much muscle and tissue is there, it can oftentimes be a very large blood blister that will eventually pop. Okay. Uh, all right, and kicking off the main card... Uh, we had Tisha Torres defeating Mel- Michelle Watterson, excuse me, via unanimous decision, 30-27, 29-28 twice. Um, I don't have a whole lot to say here. For me, this was just, this is going to be weird to say when you look at the just the raw numbers between these two, because Michelle's actually a little bit taller and has a slightly longer reach, but Michelle Watterson is not a very... She is not physically well suited to straw weight. Torres nope. might be shorter, and she is, Torres is shorter, but there's a lot of physical strength within Tisha Torres, and she again Torres is a very is on the smaller end of straw weight. I mean, she's not as short as you know Jessica Andrade, but there's a there's a physical difference between you know, short women again like Torres and Andrade who are also still kind of built for the division and Michelle Watterson who really is better served, you know, 10 pounds lower at atom weight uh, than she well, is up here know, at featherweight or excuse me, at straw weight. Watterson got, Watterson got brought into the UFC because she does have a following and name value and marketability. And she's not totally out of it at straw weight or excuse me at, um, yeah, straw weight, no, straw weight, yeah. It's definitely not the optimal place for her to be. And, and I mean, you look at her physically in her last couple of fights comparatively to her opponents, Torres, Fugrose, and Paige, none of whom were exceptionally big straw weights, all looked at least a full weight class bigger than her, if not more. Yeah, I again the the action itself was perfectly acceptable. Um there was some striking, there was, you know, clinching. It was there was just a physical inability I felt from Watterson to actually deal with what Torres was doing. And if you can't physically deal with the pressure and presence of Tisha Torres despite her being shorter, she's gonna maul you. That's kinda what she does. Um all right. Jeff, do you have any thoughts on this one? 
On uh, Watterson versus Torres? Yeah. Uh, I thought Torres looked really good. I think this is one of the better performances uh, she's had in her career. Um, uh, I'm not sure this is quite going to elevate her to the title. Uh, the title level She does have a win over Rose Namajunas In the UFC uh, Almost uh, It was in April 2016 um, But I mean You could maybe put her in there With like a Jessica Andrade And just see what happens If Especially if they are going to do that rematch With uh, Ioana next Yeah Andrade and uh, Torres First one to take a backward step loses. All right. Pat, did you have any other thoughts on this fight? I didn't like from Watterson her switching to an orthodox stance. I think they did it to try to confuse Torres, which it did momentarily, but did not have any real payoff. And Watterson is clearly not comfortable fighting out of that stance. So it's one of those things where your payoff is not worth what you put into it because ultimately it just works against you. And I don't think a lot of people invest the time in being able to pull that off correctly rather than I'm just going to show it, oh, wait, I have to stand like this because we're too close now. I'm screwed. Yeah, truly ambidextrous fighters are a rarity, and it's what makes them it – make, it make, it's what makes guys who can do it so spectacular, um, you know, all three of the top bantamweights in the world can fight from either stance mm-hmm. to one degree or another. I mean, Cody prefers orthodox clearly, but he can fight southpaw. Demetrius is pretty good from either stance. Max Holloway's ability to fight from either side with equal efficacy is absolutely shocking. Because this is, I mean, look, think about it like this, as far as Holloway. He fought Ricardo Lamas. I think he was southpaw pretty much the entire time he fought Lamas. Ricardo Lamas, yep. one of the best, one of the best featherweights in the world, unequivocally. Then he fights Jose Aldo, again like the best featherweight of all time, and one of, and again the number, the second best featherweight in the world at the moment. I still think is pretty fair. And he fought him orthodox the whole time, and he beat both of them soundly. It, it, it's amazing. And if you're gonna switch stances like that, you better put time in to make sure one isn't a, ma- a massive liability. All right, on the prelims. There were a couple of good – there was some good stuff here. Um, Paul Felder. There was some great stuff. Paul Felder defeats Charles Oliveira via TKO in the second round with elbows from top position. Um, Charles Oliveira had a really tight darts attempt for a lot of the first round. Uh, Oliveira did a lot of switching. Uh, he was and really we need him on the face on the ground. Chest. No, no, that went to the chest. Like, I thought it was to the face. Replay showed it was to the chest. It was legal. It was close, but it was legal. He uh, he kept going for that. He kept switching his position. It was – if you try to grapple with Charles Oliveira, you are going to be in for a world of hurt. And a ton of credit to Felder for being calm, but also being very, very urgent about – not wanting to be there. And once he got on top and was able to kind of settle that, he just smashed into Oliveira's face with elbows. 
Um, I think Oliveira burned himself out trying to secure that. Uh, he definitely gassed his arms. And the other thing about Charles Oliveira doesn't overcome adversity all that well. Also it's, true. It's probably my biggest knock on his whole game. He, if he can get you early, he is phenomenal. Like if he's in control, there's very few people that are ever going to beat him. Take him when into he deep has, waters. He tends to wealth, you know. He was doing fairly cardio. well against Anthony Pettis. Uh, yeah, it looked like he was he, turning the tide they were going against Pettis, pretty, but then he got caught. He got caught with a guillotine in the third round. Yeah, they they were going pretty even, but I mean, again, if he'd been, he just doesn't quite seem to rise to the occasion when it's really put on him the way other guys do. And to be fair, a lot of people don't. But speaking of guys who rise to the occasion when violence is put on them. Yancey Medeiros defeated Alex Oliveira via TKO two minutes into the third round. This was insane. This fight was absolutely insane. Both guys got dropped in the first round. Medeiros got dropped twice in the first round. Um, This was, I believe, the sixth UFC fight to feature... I wish I'd saved the stat. I can't remember if it was four knockdowns or if it was more than that. It might have been, like, six. These two beat the crap out of each other. This was also the first fight in UFC history to feature two knockdowns for each guy. Um, there was no defense. There, I mean, there was in places, but not a whole lot. These two just punched each other in the face over and over and over again. Uh, I thought Medeiros was done for after that first round. He He landed a good left that broke... Alex Oliveira's nose, and it was fauceting blood. But Oliveira came back again, dropped him twice in that first round. I actually had him winning at 10 8. He just. Oliveira had him in trouble in the third. He did. Like, these two just destroyed each other. They destroyed themselves. Then something happened in the third. Oliveira had a good. was going pretty good in the third. And then I don't know if. He suffered some kind of injury, or if there was a blow that I missed, but something very visibly happens to him, and he winds up just backing up into the fence because something's wrong, and Medeiros comes in and just starts swinging to the body and head with punches, and Oliveira never... Whatever it was that went wrong with him that caused him to back up like that, it, he didn't get it fixed before Medeiros was able to finish him. Uh, this was absolutely insane. This is one of the best fights of the year. This fight was so good when it happened that I, I legitimately questioned whether or not Gaethje and Alvarez could take it, could take fight of the night from it. And you all know how much I was looking forward to Gaethje and Alvarez. Uh, this was this was great. I loved this fight. This was insanity. Uh, again, I'm a fan. I have an appetite for violence. I got two exceptionally violent fights on this card. I was happy as a pig in shit. <laughs> um, weird fight up next. David Tamer defeats Drakkar Close for unanimous decision. 30-27, 30-27, This was just a weird fight. Um, Tamer got a pointless warning for timidity, which he was not displaying. Close was doing a lot of posturing when it wasn't like, I don't like guys posturing to begin with, 
But if you have it, but there are times when I can understand why you might have been pushed to posture like that. He just started posturing almost immediately, like, how dare you not stand in front of me? Uh, weird fight, but some really good, a really good display of how to fight while backing up from David Tamer. Um, Herb Dean's nonsensical warning about timidity notwithstanding. Uh, Felice Herrig defeated Courtney Casey via split decision, 29-28 yeah, twice. Yeah, what was Herb. that about? I had this, I think I had it 30-27 for Casey. Um, I, upon reflection, the third should have gone to Herrig probably, but this just wasn't good. Like, there, there wasn't a whole lot good. A terrible On fight. fight on Fight Pass, yeah, like those two just they had a, they each had a specific rhythm and sequence that they just did over and over and over and over and over again. It was almost no adjustment. Uh, on Fight Pass, Amanda Cooper defeated Angela Magana via TKO in the second round. This was horribly one-sided, and the only thing of note was a wardrobe malfunction. Um, Magana should not be in the UFC. I mean, it's debatable whether or not Cooper's a UFC caliber fighter. Um, Abdul Razak Al-Hassan defeated Saba Hamasi via TKO in the first round. This was a terrible stoppage. They've apparently rebooked these two for UFC 219. Um, they were having a good fight. I hope we get to see how it actually plays out because um, they were going at it. And then some bad referee positioning and just a, a really unfortunate series of events because the the blow that kind of dropped Hamasi, didn't land clearly, and he was kind of dropping anyway for a takedown. And then Al-Hassan put a lot of pressure on the back of his head as he was down on the knee looking for a single leg or for the scramble. And it kind of intimated in terms of position, if you just had a second to look at it, that um, Hamasi was unconscious because of the head position. It was deeply unnatural, but it was actually Al-Hassan pushing on him. Um, again, just I hope we get the... I hope the rematch holds up. Uh, Dominic Reyes defeated Jeremy Kimball via rear naked choke in the first round. Uh, Dominic Reyes may be the only up-and-coming light heavyweight in the entire division, and he looks pretty good. Um, he's still very young in his career, but he's well-rounded. He fights well out of scrambles. He fights well with in terms of straight punches. He's got a good kicking game. There's a lot good about him if he keeps developing. And kicking everything off, Justin Willis defeated Alan Crowder via KO in the first round. Justin Willis has a pretty good left punch. Unfortunately, his right is deeply uneducated and looks ugly as sin. Uh, that's why when you... He was just throwing the left over and over again. And the first couple of times he threw his right, it became very apparent why he was so reliant on his left. Um, it's heavyweight. It ended quickly. I'm not going to complain any too much about it. Jeff, I'll start with you. Do you have any burning desires from that from uh, the set of prelims? Uh, yeah, Felder versus uh, Oliveira is a lot of fun. Um, you know, Felder, I don't know if he's, like, going to ever make it to, like, a contender level, but the guy's fun to watch, um, and, he, and he never has boring fights, and uh, his fights are always fun and always competitive. This was no exception. Yancy Medeiros, uh, he's really, ever since he moved up to welterweight, he's, he's really coming into his own, and he, he's looking better and better each time. And uh, I don't know if it's training with uh, Max Holloway is rubbing off on him, but this was a really good performance against Alex Oliveira, and that was a, that was a fun fight too. Um, also a good win. Uh, I mean, maybe not the best fight, but good win for Felice Herrig against Courtney Casey. A bit of a back-and-forth fight. I know you didn't 
like to score Robert, but I thought it, I thought it was I thought it was a lot closer, and I think I did score it. I think I scored the first two rounds for Felice, but go figure. That's uh, like I I disagreed with the decision, but the fight was so mediocre it wasn't worth like getting upset about. Um, all right, Pat, your thoughts, your burning desires from that set of prelims. Uh, rock on, Paul Felder. Keep going, brother. You deserve a shot at something. Get a, get him a top ten fight at this point. Uh, Medeiros Oliveira is probably my favorite fight of the year. That was just nonstop action, and for it to shine the same night as. Eddie Alvarez versus Justin Gagey for me should tell you how much action and how much fun that fight was. Uh, Casey Herrig was terrible. Um, the score, I, I, I could see two, one either way. Um, I don't have an issue with that. I have an issue with the fight just being terrible and neither woman performing all that well. Uh, David Tamer, uh, great, uh, showing on how to fight backing up as Robert said and how to draw, Reactions from your opponent. Um, Herb Dean, I don't know who you were replaced with this night because that clearly wasn't a guy who's been consistently the top official in MMA year after year. Um, I don't know what you were doing tonight, but the warning to Tamer, the stoppage of the fight earlier, that was not a top official doing that. I don't know what that was. Um, Otherwise, just, you know, was what it was, solid. Uh, and Angela Magana, what goes around comes around. Yeah, Herb had a really off night last night, um, which, again, like when you referee as much as he does and at a consistently high level, it's inevitable that this happens. But he had a really off night. I was so terrified when he was the ref, when uh, he, I saw that he was the ref for Gaethje and Alvarez. Well, I was just what about terrified. Rigliotta missing a tap out from Oliveira? Well, not missing it. Rigliotta says he saw it. But he says, oh, oh I didn't that. think he was tapping out of the fight. Yeah, this, you know what the sad, the sad part is? Is that not surprising at this point, though, for Mergliata? I mean, some I, of it's I, on him. That's like, what Felder said. That's what Felder said about about the tap out. But, I mean, it, never, it, it was before. weird. It, it was just weird because you don't see a lot of tap outs due to strikes. I mean. I'm of the opinion you should probably see more. Fighters should be more conscious of when they're beat. But at the same I like I don't blame Felder one bit because if he just kind of loose tapped like that and he was just you know made in, you could kind of play it off and Felder stopped and the referee didn't acknowledge the finish and then Oliveira decided to get no I didn't tap let's keep going like I, I get why Felder did what he did. The referee stops the fight, right? Yeah. It, it's got to be the referee. The referee has to move in to stop it. Uh, yeah, no and, and people. There were people getting on Felder, and I'm like, there's no justification to get on Felder. He's there to do that. If he stops and then gets a free start and he gave up the opportunity to win the fight, he's wrong. So he did the right thing. It's the fight game. You fight to finish, and that's what he was doing. He wasn't told to stop. He can't signify a tap out from his opponent. He did the right thing. Good on you, Paul Felder. He told – Marigliotta apparently told Felder he saw it. It was like, oh, I didn't think he was trying to tap out of the fight. I'm like, what? Yeah, it was, it, the whole thing it is asinine weird. on the end of Mergliata. Yeah, I, I mean, mean, again, it, it was a weird scenario, and I, again, like, I think part of it is just weird. referees don't see a lot of guys tapping to strikes, and so they don't, when they see a Mergliata circumstance like shown, that. 
he has shown mass incompetence like this before, but I but I believe I this is one I've never heard of. I mean, I've seen, I've seen other I've like, seen other times where this type of thing happens because you're just it's so weird. It's just an uncommon well, occurrence to see well, someone I've tap the strike. Cecil Peoples, I've seen Cecil Peoples as a referee outright ignore a fighter tapping <laughs> out on the mat. That I yeah, but I've never seen a referee or dive into like, an like, attempted orgy with the two fighters. Okay, but but like but this is different to me for a referee to have admit seeing the tap, but saying, "Oh, I didn't think it, he was tapping out. I thought it was something else." That is just and uh, really, I'm gobsmacked because I've like is... never heard that before. I've heard, I've heard, I've seen circumstances where there were a couple of fights in uh, the IFL, and I'm dating myself and my fandom here, that wound up in weird positions because the referee either thought someone was tapping, and they weren't, or it just. Uh, it, I think the big thing that would have helped this, and this is weird. The way Oliveira tapped is appropriate if you're in a submission hold. If you're tapping out to strikes, like I think he needed to be a little more. He, like there needed to be a bit more of a motion there. In terms of yeah, I just got elbowed and I'm done, as opposed to you know. Again, like the whole circumstance was just weird. But uh, all right, anyway, that was UFC 218. If you didn't have anything else, Pat. No, nothing else. That was two very opposite cards in terms of what they brought to the table. Yeah. Uh, all right. Again, thanks to everyone who read and followed along. Uh, congratulations to uh, – not congratulations might not be the right word, but there's a regular reader and commentator who was actually in attendance live for this event. So uh, I'm glad you had a good card to see because this one had a lot of good stuff. So hope you had a lot of fun. Uh, this coming Saturday, man, this card is like three fights away from being legitimately good. There's a couple of decent fights here. Um, the UFC will be in Fresno because I don't know why, but it's not a place I would personally visit a lot. Uh, actually, apparently, I believe Paul Felder will be on commentary for this event, so good for him. Uh, your main event is Cub Swanson versus Brian Ortega. This uh, Edgar had gone through with his fight with um, Max Holloway. I believe this fight would crown the number one contender. Because, A, I believe Max Holloway well, would have beaten well, Frankie. Well, then you, you you had Aldo versus Lamas, too. So there was that. That was, really- uh, that was the other relevant one. I just kind of tend to think that. I think they would have gone with the winner of this one unless either Lamas or Aldo did something really spectacular. Uh, this is a good fight. This is a really good fight. Brian Ortega is undefeated. He's fi- The final round, Finish Club, loves this guy. He's finished his last four fights in the third round. Uh, he TKO'd Tiago Tavares. He submitted Diego Brandao. He knocked out Clay Guida, and he tapped out Hanato Moicano. There's a lot good about Brian Ortega's game. This is a serious step up in competition for him, though. Uh, <laughs> Cub Swanson is really, really good. Um, Swanson's last... Jeez. Swanson's only losses in the UFC are to Ricardo Lamas, Frankie Edgar, and Max Holloway. That's it. 
That's what it takes to beat this guy at this point in his career. Somebody on that level. He's on a four-fight winning streak. Um, He just beat Artem Lobov, but Artem Lobov sucks. Uh, The win over Duho Choi was much more impressive in my estimation. Uh, I am really torn on this one. Because Cub... On the feet, Cub is really good. He moves well. He switches stances deliberately. He strikes from odd angles, but he strikes very effectively. And he's got good power. He's not a—I mean, again, he's not necessarily a one-punch kind of guy, but you'll know it if he hits you. He's also proven that he can go five rounds. The downside to Cub's game. Is tends to come in grappling, especially in scrambles, because Cub is not bad there. But because he's not bad, he also tends to hang around when he shouldn't. Um, when he beat um, Ross Pearson, he lost a couple of those rounds big because he was happy to close his guard when Pearson took him down, and then Pearson just rained down some serious punishment. Now, Ortega's less likely to bludgeon him, but if he tries to hang around on the mat with a guy as good as Ortega is, he'll get tapped. <sighs> I hate picking against Cub Swanson. I really do. Because he's so consistent, and he is so good. But uh, I'm going to regret this. All right, well, let me say this. I know I'm going to be wrong about this, but I'm going to do it anyway. I actually am going to pick Brian Ortega here. I'm cur- I don't know that Cub's going to be as disciplined as he needs to be with his upper body movement. If he gets the way he tends to in terms of bobbing and ducking, uh, Ortega's shown a significant proficiency with timing uppercuts and knees to people who bob on him. And if this gets into a scramble... I really don't like his chances against a guy as slick on the ground as Brian Ortega. I am probably going to be wrong about this. Like I, I'm actively, I'm actually picking what I what might be a statistically less like likely outcome. But I'm picking Brian Ortega here. I I will happily eat as much crow as is necessary when Cub Swanson turns in another stellar performance. Um, Pat, I'll start with you for this one. Cub Swanson and Brian Ortega. Just how out of my ma- how out of my mind am I at the moment? You're you're not out of your mind. Um, in Ortega, you have a guy who has shown the ability to fight all over successfully, successful striking, successful with his grappling, back and forth fights. He's close, strong. Uh, he's come back from adversity in fights where he was down. So there's a lot to like about Brian Ortega. The odds makers themselves are torn on this fight. Looking at three different lines, one has the fight at even odds. One has Swanson as a very slight favorite at minus 120 to Ortega's minus 110. And the third has the very close line of Swanson at minus 120, Ortega plus 100. So very little separates these guys in terms of the odds makers books. What's going to separate this in my opinion is that I've seen Ortega in fights where he was outstruck substantially by Diego Brandao. I saw him have issues on their feet 
with Tiago Tavares. And he also had some issues with Renato Moicano. I don't think any of those guys present close to the threat on the feet that Cub Swanson does. And I don't just mean in terms of Swanson having substantial punching power. I mean technically the things he does on his feet. Now, maybe the fight we saw him struggle most in was when Clay Guida had him in the second round and was winning the third until Ortega just smashed his face in with a knee. And we know that Swanson's not going to present that type of fight to him. But the guys who've beaten Cub Swanson are the best we have to offer. Max Holloway and Frankie Edgar. And then you have to go all the way back to 2011 when he lost to Lamas and 2010 when he lost to Chad Mendez. This is a guy who's no joke and has gotten better over time. Um, I like Killer Cub here. I'm not ruling out an Ortega win. But I've seen Cub successfully fight against guys who I believe are better than Ortega. I have not seen Ortega beat somebody who I think is either as good or as dangerous as Cub. So I like Swanson here, and I like him to finish. Uh, Jeff, you're a significant fan of Cub Swanson. Uh, How do you see this fight going? I got Swanson here. Um, I think it's a tough fight. Uh, I just think Swanson, I think he's, I, I could see Ortega maybe taking the, the first round or the second round. I think Swanson, though, he's a battle-tested veteran. Uh, I think he's a much smarter, more technical fighter. I think he's better, he's better uh, with his angles. I think he has a style that's more dynamic. Um, Swanson might start slow, but he's also very good at adjusting to his opponent's style, and I think that's what's going to play out here. Uh, As long as he can weather the storm for Ortega, because Ortega is a pretty strong athlete. Uh, He's a very powerful athlete. I think uh, he's a good grappler, but I think uh, think Swanson, you know, uh, I'm trying to think. When was the last? Okay, he was submitted. He was submitted by Frankie and Holloway. Um... Those fights were a while ago, and since that time he's won four fights. And I don't think, I don't think Ortega is even a grappler, an MMA grappler to the level of Frankie or, or even Holloway for that matter. Uh, and and, and Jeff, to add yeah. to your point, to add to your point, those weren't strictly you know BJJ trap submission setups. Edgar no. did significant damage prior to that. No, he worked him over for like five rounds before he got that. Well, so did Holloway. Uh, for the record, yeah, Pat's talked yeah. about this. He had a broke. Uh, Holloway look, broke his are, jaw, which was what led look, to those the guillotine Those are UFC champions we're talking about. And I think Ortega yeah. is good, and I think he could get there eventually. I just don't see him. I don't think he's going to be able to outgrapple and submit a guy like Swanson is my point. So, yeah. All right, next up. These top three fights are pretty solid, actually. Next up, we have uh, Jason Knight uh, facing Gabriel Benitez. Uh, I don't know when I kind of wound up being on the, for want of a better phrase, the Jason Knight hype train. Might have been the Dan Hooker win. Like I, I genuinely don't know when it happened because I remember his loss in his debut to Kawajiri, which he took on short notice. Uh, the Jim Ayler's fight was pretty good, but uh, then yeah, he just 
kind of runs over Dan Hooker, and I was kind of that Hooker had impressed me a little bit. Then he just blows Alex Caceres out of the water, uh, takes out Ch- Chaz Skelly, and then his fight with Lamas. I mean, he got beat, but that was a bit of a war until you know the, just the power that Lamas brings kind of overwhelmed him. Uh, again, I have no idea exactly when it happened that I kind of started believing in this guy's skill set, but. Um, he's fighting Gabriel Benitez and I don't think Gabriel Benitez is all that good. Um, Benitez is lost in the UFC to Andre Feely and Enrique Barzola. Uh, he won some pointless season of tough Latin America, didn't he? No, no, he didn't even win it. He was just on the first season. Um, I anticipate an entertaining fight because Jason Knight, whether you like him or not, always has entertaining bouts. Uh, I, I I have a real hard time picking Gabriel Benitez against anyone who's actually good. And I tend to think Knight's actually pretty good. Uh, Jeff, I'll stick with you. Do you have any thoughts on this fight? Uh, your prediction? Interesting fight. Um... going with Jason Knight here. All right, Pat, the uh, the old redneck zombie. Um, <laughs> Jason uh, Diaz. Yeah, that's what uh, I think it was uh, Grabaka Hitman who <laughs> kind of coined that. Because like, the first time I saw him fight, I, I actually said I thought he looked like a redneck Diaz brother. And then, of course, you know, Hick Diaz being a much better derivation of my thought there. Uh, yeah. Uh, are you gonna break the mold here? Do you think he? Do you think Gabriel Benitez pulls this one off? No, I haven't seen anything from him that would indicate to me he is gonna beat anyone really worthwhile. Um, I like Knight here. I'm really confident in that pick. All right. Next up, our second best fight of the card. Uh, the best being the main event. This was supposed to be Hani. Excuse me, Ronnie. He actually does want you to pronounce the R now. Uh, Ronnie Yaya and Aljamain Sterling, which is a darn good fight in and of itself. Um, you know, Yaya's only lost to Joe Soto recently. Uh, tapped out Henry Briones like it was nothing. And Al- you know, Sterling's a grappler first and foremost. That is where the majority of his skill set lies. Uh, Sterling coming off of that win over Henan Burrell. Then Yaya got injured, which sucks, but happens. And, you know, Yaya's a veteran, and the longer you spend in the sport, the more injuries accumulate. And stepping in for Ronnie Yaya is Marlon Marais, and I am always down to watch Marlon Marais fight. Um, Again, Marais' only loss in years was a somewhat controversial split decision to Rafael Asensal. Coming off of that win over John Dodson... Um, I'm curious to see how Marais will do against someone with the physical dimensions of Sterling because Aljamain Sterling's very long for the division. And he's, again, grappling tends to be where Sterling really excels. Uh, He fights really long and really awkward on the feet. He's made some significant strides, especially in the Burrell fight. He showed a much improved uh, jab and just some distance striking. Uh, again, this is a really good fight. I'm leaning pretty heavily towards Marais. Um, Marais is a good grappler in his own right. 
And he, again, I want to see how he adjusts to a longer fighter, but uh, Sterling tends to, for as good as his grappling is and for as much as there is you know, potential within him, he also doesn't respond all that well to adversity or to real pressure. I mean, his only losses are split decisions to Brian Carraway and in the Austin South fight. I didn't think the Austin South fight really deserved to be a split, and um, I actually think he won the Brian Carraway fight, which shouldn't surprise anyone, because Brian Carraway's not that good. But I, again, I, I'm just leaning towards Marais. Um but I am absolutely anticipating this fight. This should be a pretty good one. Uh, Pat, again, again you, you know, we're all kind of fans of Marlon here, so what do you think about him stepping in on short notice, and do you think Al Jermaine is going to be able to you know, upset... Uh, I'd say upset, I haven't seen the odds, but do you think Sterling's going to be able to you know, make Marais uncomfortable enough to win this? I think Sterling will definitely be able to test him in the grappling exchanges, if there are any, but I don't like his odds here. Um, I know people are really touting the Burrell win as like a breakthrough for him. He fought an out of shape Burrell who really hasn't looked good in a long time. And if you go back to his uh, three previous fights, he's one and two. Granted, there were split decision losses and one was to a sunset where there's no shame, but he also lost to Brian Carraway. And there's a lot of, sh- um, there is a lot of shame in that. You know, so you're talking about a guy facing realistically a top five guy in the division in the best division in MMA, particularly the UFC. I, I don't like his odds here. I, I like Marlon. I don't think Marlon would take this fight on short notice unless he was really confident in himself. And I and I think the, the quote-unquote loss he suffered – in his first UFC fight, has really motivated him in a positive way. And he looks great last time out, and I think he'll look great against Sterling. All right, Jeff, Marlon Marais, and Aljamain Sterling, what are your thoughts? Uh, I like Sterling here. I think it's a good matchup. I think he's going to dominate and outgrapple Marais uh, and make him sorry for taking this fight. All right. Um I think we're just going to do Burning Desires for the last fights here. Um, There's nothing else that's really standing out to me. Uh, So for the rest of the card, we have Scott Holtzman taking on Daryl Horcher. This is Horcher's first fight. No, he uh, took that split decision over Devin Powell. That wasn't great. Um, But Holtzman. Uh, What do I know about this guy? Not much. Jeez. I'll go with Holtzman. Not sold on that, but why not? Um, Eric Anders is fighting Marcus Perez. Uh, Anders, oh, he knocked out Rafael Natal. I remember that. That was sweet. Uh, Yeah, I'll take Anders here. I don't know anything about Perez. Um, At bantamweight, we have Albert Morales. I'm sure I'm remembering this gentleman correctly. Boy, he's had a rough UFC go. Fought to a draw with Alejandro Perez, got smoked by Thomas Almeida, barely beat Andre Sukumtot, and then lost to Brett Johns. That's rough. Hmm. And I don't know Lopez at all, so uh, Morales probably takes this, but this seems like deeply favorable matchmaking. Um, at women's flyweight, we have Alexis Davis. Really? 
She's cutting down. She wasn't. I don't know. So I'm is someone else. If, the person she's fighting. Carmouche doesn't surprise me though. Like Davis is a pretty. Davis is a fair-sized bantamweight. Carmouche was always undersized for the division. Um, Davis is coming off of that win over Cindy Dandois, and just God, that fight sucked. That was so bad. Um, Carmouche has won her last two. She's yeah, Carmouche is she's the only person to finish Andrade. No, no, Raquel Pennington finished her. Davis beat uh, Carmouche a couple of years ago, right? Um, let me see. Yes, actually, at um, Fight for the Troops three, uh, November of thirteen, uh, Davis defeated her. Um, I actually like Carmouche here. Davis did not look good. Uh, I think coming back from her, what was it, her pregnancy? She's really been rusty since then. Um, so I'll go with Carmouche there. Um, the other, the only other fight I'm really looking forward to on this card, actually, we have Luke Sanders and Andre Sukumtot. Um, Sanders was putting a pretty significant beating on Yuri Alcantara before uh, Alcantara hit a really nice knee bar. Uh, I like Luke Sanders in this fight. Um, Sukumtot has two split decision losses in the UFC, one of which I seem to recall thinking he won. Not so. I can't. I may be misremembering, but uh, I usually look forward to Luke Sanders fighting. He's there's some serious skill on that guy. At flyweight, we have Carl's John De Thomas, who I have seen fight, and Alex Perez, who I'm not sure I've seen. Just because I know who De Thomas is, I will go with him. Um, Frankie Signs. Jeez, where did that guy fall off a cliff? Uh, he had a really good start to his UFC career, and now he's lost three in a row. Um, I mean, Faber and Wineland, there's no shame, but, and he lost to Augusto Mendez. Um, he's fighting Murab. Whoa, I am not, I'm going to butcher this gentleman's name, last name. Mirab, uh, Deval, Devalishvili? Devalishvili? There's so many different ways that DV star could be pronounced depending on where he's from specifically. I, I have to type that thing. <laughs> Crap. Uh, I'll go with Signs here just because I don't know the other guy. But uh, given how Signs has started really falling off, wouldn't shock me if he lost. On Fight Pass, we have Chris Gritzmacher and Davi Ramos. I know both of these guys. Yeah, I'll go with Gritzmacher, but that's. No, I'm not sold on that one. At Bantamweight, we have Alejandro Perez and Yuri Alcantara. Um, Perez lost to Patrick Williams. I mean, Yuri should beat him, but Yuri's also started, um, he started hitting the end of his career a little bit. Uh, his age and his miles are starting to show. And I mean, the man's had over 40 fights, almost 50. Jeez. that, That happens to everybody. And then kicking everything off, Antonio Braganetto fights Trevin Giles. Um, I know who Neto is, and I don't know who Giles is, but that's literally all I'm basing that on. All right, Jeff, I'll start with you. Do you have any burning desires from the rest of those fights? Anything that sticks out to you? Nope. All right, Pat, any thoughts? 
Luke Sanders will win with the disarmor as a tribute to Becky Lynch, his significant other. All righty. I will have live coverage of that particular event come Saturday on the four in the four one one zone in the MMA zone of four one one mania. I can form words and coherent sentences sometimes. Uh, so stop by, say hello. I appreciate it. Uh, I deeply appreciate everyone who suffers through my work um, because it could be better, and I keep trying. But uh, you know, thank you all for reading and following along. It means a lot. Especially when there's just so many places that do what I do. And some of them aren't as good as me. Like some of them are better. Like quite a few actually. But there's a, there's several that like no, I'm better than, you know, that one and I won't name names because this isn't about me boasting, but like no, I I, I know there's better than me, but I also know there's worse. So thank you for your patronage as far as my <laughs> coverage goes. Alright, Jeff, is there were there any major news items from the last week we wanted to talk about? Yeah, um, Shocker and Derek Brunson are set to have a rematch at UFC on Fox uh, 27. That's set for next month. And um, let's see. That's, I think, the only fight scheduled for the main card yet. I'm not sure if that's the main event, but uh, I guess you could have that in, as the main event if you wanted. Um, so there's that. Boy, that first fight was bad for Brunson. I remember that. Jacare knocked him out three times in like six seconds before the ref stopped it. I mean, much earlier in Brunson's career, obviously, and I actually might lean towards Brunson now. But uh, that first one was bad for Brunson. Okay. Uh, Conor McGregor's hitting like mob bosses and stuff now. Guy's getting, I don't know, I don't know what's going on with him right now. Um, he's a mess. Um, Pat, and I don't say that lightly. A, I'm curious, like, Pat, you've seen a lot of guys in the fight game self-destruct when they get success. Conor McGregor, like, punching the godfather of the Irish mob. Like, where does this rank? It's not a joke, he did that. Oh, uh, it's it's pretty high up there on the stupidity level. Um I don't know. He took a lot of punches against Floyd Mayweather. I think he's prematurely punchy. I mean, like, the the, the legitimate report, uh, reporters in Ireland who cover the crime beat are talking about, no, like, these guys will actually have him and his family killed. This, I don't know what to say about this, man. Like, jumping into a cage and getting into it with a ref is stupid, but it's not actually the the dumbest thing that's happened to very successful fighters in MMA or boxing. Deciding to engage in physical combat with the head of a major crime organization, I mean, I'm at a loss. Like, even boxers back in the 20s when everything was rigged, or most of it was rigged, like, you didn't see them go up and, you know, physically engage with uh, you know, the father of the, one of the, you know, leaders of the five families. It's It's just bizarre. Like, this this makes no sense to me. Ugh. And apparently my brothers who just are now hearing about this are somewhat baffled. <laughs> uh, all right. Yeah, I I got nothing for McGregor. Like this is this is this is just Uh again, I, I literally have nothing. That's just so weird. 
Uh, was there anything else? Uh, those were the main items. I mean, we kind of went over the, the, you know, the major fights, and plus, now it looks like Stipe, Stipe Miocic, and Francis Ngannou. I mean, that that fight's all but signed at this point. Or, you know, foreseen catastrophe, be it injuries or drug test failures, that's our next heavyweight title fight. So. Yeah, apparently, uh, actually, Dana White brought this up at the, I believe, the press conference after 218. He, uh, the UFC and Stipe are still negotiating his new contract, but they seem to be heading in the right direction. So, I would also like, uh, okay, my bit of uh, sarcasm for the evening before we get to plugs here. In the wake of Henry Cejudo's win over Sergio Pettis, he was, of course, asked about uh, Demetrius Johnson versus TJ Dillashaw. I'm very sad that they've decided to abandon that particular fight because Dana White says 100% it's happening. And Dana White's word is worth, um, well, about the opposite of what he says. Mostly because I bring that up mostly because every legitimate reporter who's talked to the relevant parties says that there's really not been any movement. And if it was just one guy, then maybe we could, uh, uh, you know, (laughs) then maybe I'd, take Dana's word as being like they're moving in the right direction at least, but uh, yeah, I I do, like again, I wish that fight would happen just so I could see it because it would be awesome, but the logistics of that and the repercussions thereof are things I, are headaches I don't think anyone really wants to deal with. Uh, Alright, on that note, uh, Jeff, what do you have to plug? I know you've reviewed a couple of movies. And you have some uh, yeah, coming check up. Out my review of uh, Coco, which was number one at the box office. Uh, I was uh, I did just receive my invite uh, last week uh, to Star Wars, and I'm seeing that uh, the last Jedi on December 11th. <laughs> so planning to have an early review of that. Um, check out um, oh uh, my interview with Peter Cullen. Uh, working on potential interviews with uh, Felice Herrig and Paige Van Sant. They aren't yeah. on the books yet, but we're we're working on it. So hopefully, so just be on the lookout for those. Thank you, guys. Will do, Jeff. I'll see you next week. All right, Pat. Anything you'd like to plug? Yeah, a couple things going on. We've got uh, the uh, two weeks ago's episode of the Metal Hammer of Doom again. Reviewing the first album from Poison, look what the cat dragged in. We have a source material coming up with myself, Jesse Starter, and Gavin Napier, where we will be reviewing some DC holiday comics that have come out over the years. Uh, And trust me, they range from good, bad, and most definitely ugly. Um, So be on the lookout for that. We're going to be recording it uh, this coming week. And in addition, uh, Fuller House Season 3B drops on December 22nd, shortly thereafter, myself and Mark Radulich will, of course, be hosting another edition of TV Party to discuss it. All right. Uh, as for myself, there will be no Damn You Hollywood this Tuesday as there is no major release. However, if you do want to hear a movie review, Mark and I reviewed Coco last week. Uh, great movie. Legitimately great movie. Uh, I mean, it's Pixar, you know, there's, they don't really make bad movies apart from Cars 2. So you can listen to our review of that. Uh, This Tuesday, again, in lieu of Damn You Hollywood, Mark and I will be doing a TV party 
I don't know if Jesse. I I feel like there's a third person joining us who I, whose name I can't remember. I like there's two or three people it could be, and I can't remember which of them it might be. But we'll be talking about Netflix's Punisher series, um, which I thoroughly enjoyed. But again, I enjoy consenting and regulated violence between people in the you know, in the form of MMA. So the violence that the Punisher brings is uh, deeply appealing. Uh, you can, so you can hear our thoughts on that season, uh, the good, the bad, the weird, because there, you know, it, I again, I thoroughly enjoyed it. It is not perfect. There's some issues, and we'll talk about all of that. Again, I know it's Mark and me. Uh, there might be a Jesse Starcher or Ronnie Adams joining us. I'm not sure about that, so don't hold me to it. But we will be talking about that this Tuesday. Uh, it should be a lot of fun. I'm very curious to hear Mark's thoughts because again, I know mine, and I will be. Talking about it a lot when we get going on that. Uh, again, coverage on Saturday of UFC Fight Night 123. Next week we will let's see. It'll be the tenth. We will review Fight Night 123, and I believe we will preview. Uh, yeah, we'll preview UFC on Fox 26. That will be the 16th. Uh, Lawler versus Dos Anjos. Um, this is actually a very fan-friendly event. Again, you have Robbie Lawler and RDA. That's that's bloodshed, love. There's a lot of fun that's going to be had there. The co-main event is also guaranteed bloodshed as Santiago Ponzinibbio fights Mike Perry. Uh, Misha Serkunov tries to get back on the winning side of things after he's lost to Volkan Uzdemir as he fights Glover Teixeira, which is actually a relevant light heavyweight fight. Uh, Ricardo Lamas and Josh Emmett is just kind of there. I mean, it was supposed to be Lamas and Aldo, so I get that it's not, again, it's not what was originally intended. Uh, the co-main event, excuse me, the rest of the card, uh, Justin Scoggins actually just pulled out of his bout with Tim Elliott. I just saw this on Twitter. It sucks, but uh, Scoggins apparently fractured his spinal process. Uh, so I hope he recovers. Uh, that actually would have been a really good fight. Um, geez, Jordan Means still fighting. That's just bad for everyone involved. Where are they for this? Oh, they're in Winnipeg. Okay, I was looking at some of the names. Like, why? Okay, no, no. They're they're in Canada. Like, okay. That explains why we're trotting out Chad Laprise and John McDessie and Nordine Taleb. All right. So we'll preview that next week. Uh, and then I hope you will all join us for that. I think that's everything we've got here. Uh, for Pat and Jeff. Until next time, I'm Robert. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing us with your friends. If you have friends who are fans of the sport, please point them in this direction. I'm happy to try and win them over. Uh, Until next time, please continue to be well, be safe, and behave. (laughs) 